Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. There were rumors from even before he took office that Donald Trump was somehow indebted to Russian oligarchs, members of the Russian mob, and Vladimir Putin. If true, were the reasons financial or personal, and how deep did they go? In his latest book, American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery, Craig Unger writes that Compromat operations documented the darkest secrets of the most powerful people in the world and transformed them into potent weapons. It's published by Dutton and brings Craig Unger, author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia, to our show now. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Leonard. (laughs) Uh, after the uh, 2016 election of Donald Trump, the Russian word uh, kompromat became part of the English lexicon. How would you define it and how um, might it apply to Donald Trump? Well, the word really means compromising materials. It's the, the sort of put those two words together. And it means that the uh, Russians actually before them, the Soviets, had something on Donald Trump uh, and uh Compromise, you know, this is very similar to um, extortion in a way. But compromise material loses all its power if it's ever revealed. It's only it's only useful when they're holding it over you as a means of controlling you, and that's what's happened to Donald Trump. And I tried to go back to the very beginning. Uh, That is, uh, we've had almost every major um, credible. Uh, national security officials saying that Donald Trump was a Russian asset. Uh, uh, that's uh, John Brennan, James Clapper, quite a few of them, really. Um, and it's been written about so often, but no, no one's ever really dived into it, and that's what I wanted to do. I've heard newscasters again and again say, well, what does Russia have on Trump? What does Putin have on him? Why is Trump so new to Putin but it's always left hanging? And I went back to the beginning to answer the question. And how did you gain access to some of this material? Isn't most of it secret? Uh, A lot is secret, but you'd be surprised. There are a lot of former uh, KGB agents who live in the Washington, D.C. area, and they're not that hard to reach. I'm surprised I'm one of the few people who's reached out to them. And uh, I talked to a lot of people who were in the FBI, uh, former CIA officials, but the most interesting to me were the former KGB operatives. And, uh, again, I, I interviewed a lot of them, but one, one of them was a former major in the KGB mm-hmm. named Yuri Spitz. And uh, I had uh, well over 20 hours of interviews with him. I went back to him again and again and again, uh, trying to piece this all together and then uh, corroborate, trying to corroborate or refute whatever he told me. Because uh, his, some of the things he said have been called into doubt. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. The book is out today. This is the first day. So we'll see if, how much it's actually called into doubt. He has not really spoken on the record before. So this is very interesting to me. And at the time, in the mid-'80s, he was a KGB officer in uh, Washington, D.C., where mm. he was assigned to recruit Americans as spies for the Soviet Union. The KGB maintained offices in a number of American cities, New York as well. Oh, absolutely. It was uh, New York 
uh, Washington and San Francisco were the big three. And uh, people forget this. People forget the Cold War. But the mid-'80s were known as the spy wars. And you had famous spies who were later, later caught, caught, like Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen. Uh, but there were hundreds and hundreds of Soviet. Those, were, of course, were American spying for the Soviet Union. Uh, but you had hundreds more who were in, here in New York, uh, many of them stationed at the United Nations and also at the New York station known as the Residentura. When did Donald Trump, the businessman, first meet with anyone with real power in Russia? Well, I I think the opening took place, and I I had referred to this um, briefly in my first book on Trump, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, when in 1980, Trump bought 200 TV sets from uh, a, uh, a store run by Soviet immigrants that sold electronics. And this was, I, I don't know uh, if you remember Crazy Eddie's, which was a mm-hmm. sort of a TV of depart, uh, electronics store. This was Crazy Eddie's with a Russian accent. And it's where all the Soviets went to buy their electronics if they were diplomats or spies and about to return to the Soviet Union. Um, and one thing I found that had never been reported before was that this was sort of a front for the Soviet Union, for the KGB. It was controlled by the KGB. And uh, it was a meeting place for uh, people whose names you may know, they sort of faded, but like Shevardnadze or Andrei Gromyko, people like that, who were major league international diplomats who came to the United States a lot. The, the Russians used a shell company to purchase apartments in Trump Tower with cash. Might that have registered with Trump as a possible money laundering scheme? Oh, absolutely. And in, in my earlier book, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, uh, I wrote about that at great length. Uh, in 1984, for example, a man named David Bogdan, who was another Russian emigre, uh, just went into Trump Tower, met with Trump personally, put down $5 million. Uh, this was a while ago, and that $5 million would be worth about $15 million today. Uh, and he said, I'll take five condos, just like that. And mm-hmm. Trump, in his typical fashion, uh, didn't ask any questions. He just took the money. Uh, but but the main point there is that David Bogdan was tied to uh, the Russian mafia. And the Russian mafia, in turn, was tied to the, reported to the KGB. It's very, very different than the American mafia, which was always at war with the FBI. In Russia and the Soviet Union before that, uh, organized crime was tied to uh, intelligence. It was tied to the KGB and later its successors. So why did the mob and the KGB, why were they even interested in Trump? Uh, you write that at the time Trump was very interested in the status of the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, and was actually hoping to broker some kind of a deal. Uh, he was a uh, he was a real estate guy uh, who um, was having problems with uh, some of his casinos in Atlantic City. Right. Well, um, well, Atlantic City, this goes way back to the early 80s. And Trump, uh, the casinos came in the 90s. But mm-hmm. Trump started out, uh, I, I think this deal would seem very simple and mundane, buying 200 TV sets for for a new hotel. This is the Grand Hyatt on yeah. 42nd Street near Grand Central Station. Um, that, was, that mundane deal was sort of a door opener. 
because the electronics store was tied to the KGB, and this was a way they were sold. The TV sets were sold uh, by the co-owner who was known as a spotter agent for the KGB. And when he opened the door to Trump, he uh, that was how Trump uh, was first got in contact with the KGB. That was the feeler that allowed the KGB to start following Trump and starting to cultivate him. Uh, and uh, that's what happened. And was Roy Cohn playing any role in all of this? No, Roy Cohn died in 1986, so he was still alive then. I don't know if he had any real knowledge of, about this, and I doubt that he did, because Roy Cohn was really anti-communist, and I don't, I'm not sure he would have uh, uh, gone along with working for the KGB. It's also not clear exactly how and when Trump knew what he knew. That is, he is so susceptible to flattery, he... Um, um, you know, you, 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 you give them a good price on TV sets and you invite them to lunch. That's how it starts. And they start cultivating him. He had no real knowledge of foreign policy at all during this period. And you, you mentioned how he started uh, saying he was an expert on foreign policy and nuclear arms and all that kind of stuff. I mean, th this is what is particularly interesting, because uh, all that appears to have been fed to him by uh, Russian intelligence, by the KGB and so forth. Uh, Trump, uh, in 1984, started uh, telling reporters at the Washington Post and the New York Times and so forth that he was a genius on nuclear arms. He wanted to sure. be the guy who was um, uh, negotiating the strategic arms limitation talks. And you can just see the Russians... Uh, murmuring in his ear, wow, you have such wonderful unorthodox policies. You should be a major player on this. And that's how they started to uh, uh, charm him and cultivate him and invite him to the Soviet Union. Which And all that was done uh, by the KGB. I have for the first time the names of the people uh, in the KGB who actually started the invitation of Trump uh, to Moscow. Because a number of the KGB agents have defected and are now living in the United States and are willing to talk? Uh, well, in this case, yes. I talked to two of them. One was General Oleg Kalugin, uh, who's in the Washington, D.C. area. But more importantly, for the first time, I had, uh, as I say, more than uh, 20, 20 or 30 hours mm -hmm. uh, with Yuri Schwitz, who was a major in the KGB at the time. And what's so interesting about Yuri is he does have some firsthand experience in which he is notified by the KGB that they've recruited a new asset and his name is Donald Trump. And when Yuri went back to Moscow just for uh, as, as part of his work in 1987, uh, this is when it happened. And it was just that Trump had visited Moscow for the first time uh, in the summer of 1987, around July. And by and he was by the, when he went back, he was so pumped up about his expert knowledge of foreign policy and all that, and he had been so cultivated by the KGB that he decided to run for president, or at least try to. Uh, a lot of people have forgotten uh, this was. George, 
this was the Reagan era. Reagan was still president. George H.W. Bush was vice president. And he was the presumptive nominee for the 1988 presidential elections. And Trump was uh, considering at least challenging him. He went ahead to New Hampshire, ahead of the New Hampshire primaries, to give a speech or two and all that stuff. Uh, And he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. And it, it went forth with this incredibly bizarre foreign policy that just happened to echo every KGB talking point there was. Uh, to dismantle NATO, destroy our alliance with the, Japan, uh, all this kind of stuff that really didn't make sense in terms of American foreign policy to anyone. It was way out there. Um, but this is precisely what the KGB had in mind. And, and at this time, Yuri, uh, Yuri Spitz uh, had gone back to Moscow. He was uh, in his office in Yasinevo, which is on the outskirts skirts of Moscow, and it's where the uh, uh, first chief directorate is, is located, which does all the foreign intelligence and counterintelligence stuff. And uh, he got a memo that was being circulated throughout his office that had been drawn up by the active measures department uh, of the KGB. And uh, it was for internal consumption only. Um, And uh, it it, it was celebrating the acquisition of a valuable new asset by the KGB who was performing active measures, that is, propaganda. And it, it attached to the memo was an example of its success Uh, which was of a new Russian asset in the United States who was doing propaganda for them. He was putting out their talking points. As an example, they attached the ad in the New York Times that had been Mm. taken out by Donald Trump. So at that moment, Yuri, for the first time, uh, heard the name Donald Trump and realized he was a KGB asset. My guest on today's Let It Locate at Large is Craig Unger, whose latest book is American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. It's published by Dutton. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. He claimed that he had a meeting with the then Soviet leader, Mikhail S. Gorbachev, in late 1987. Is that true? Uh, I don't believe it is. It, it, was, uh, it was printed in the New York Times, which did later retract it, by the way. But what, what I think happened in that case is I strongly suspect it was Donald Trump himself who told that to the Times on background, and they thought Trump was a good enough source. I mean, he wasn't. Uh, quite as famous for lying <laughs> uh, back then as he is today. Um, but I, that, that meeting did not place, take place in Moscow at that time. Uh, and Trump was sort of always inflating himself, as, as we all know. Um, and he had begun doing that early on, but not everyone was on to him uh, more than 30 years ago. So what was his public opinion of Gorbachev? Well, it's interesting how it changed, because initially he said some very nice things. And if you follow Gorbachev's career, um, 
you know, Gore, we, we tend to see him as sort of the genial, uh, uh, very cordial guy who uh, ended the, helped end the Cold War, uh, allowed the Berlin Wall to be taken down and so forth. But in an early part of his career, uh, though he was quite genial and all that, he was still very much a, a, a Marxist-Leninist. And the idea of having a Trump Tower in Red Square, this uh, garish monument to American capitalism, right next to the Kremlin, was idiotic. And they, but they um, uh, told Trump how wonderful they thought Trump Tower was. Why don't you do one in Moscow? And that's how they lured him over. The KGB did a personality and professional evaluation of Trump. What was their overall assessment? Well, he was uh, ideal. He was the ideal candidate to be recruited. I mean, and, and as Yuri tells me, you look, look for certain reasons to recruit an asset. Uh, uh, if you go back to the 50s and even the 60s and, and a, a little later, uh, there were Americans who might side with the Soviets for ideological reasons, and that did happen in, in, in some of the post-war period. But by the 80s, those days were over. And uh, another way to recruit, recruit people is money. And Donald Trump, I, I, I know that I don't want to shock you, Leonard, but he is very interested in money. And so he had the lure of uh, building a Trump Tower on uh, Red Square, and he took it seriously, even though the KGB just laughed about it and thought it was a joke. Did everything change with the dissolution of the USSR in 1991? Well, it changed, but not completely, and, and that's what people forget. I mean, one thing is America let down its guard enormously, and I, I talked to people both uh, in the KGB uh, and in uh, the CIA about this period, and they both said they really didn't know what to do anymore. Uh, you know, in 1991, just afterwards, uh, uh, the attorney general at the time uh, was William Barr. People forget that, who, of course, oversaw the, the FBI. And so right around the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they took 300 FBI uh, agents uh, who were focused on uh, the Russian mafia, and they transferred them to the crack cocaine epidemic. And this was the biggest transfer of manpower in the history of the FBI at the time. And the CIA was sort of the same way. Uh, I've talked to a lot of them. People didn't know who, they'd say, are they are friends, are enemies? What's going on now? You devote a chapter of your book to the rise of William Barr. Uh, he began working his way up the ladder in George H.W. Bush's Department of Justice. And what did he say about the authority that the Constitution gives a president? He basically said it was unlimited. And, mm. you know, it's interesting when Tr Barr first joined the Trump administration, there were a number of apologists uh, who weren't necessarily totally conservative, who said Barr is very professional, he's very, very smart, he knows the law. Uh, and, and I think those three things were kind of accurate. But he, uh, he was uh, really one of the most vicious right-wing people imaginable when you look at it. And all that was clear in his first, uh, first 
tenure under George H.W. Bush. That is, excuse me. When, when, uh, when George H.W. Bush was, was the director of the CIA in 1976, he, he worked for him. Yes, and, and he put him into, uh, when George H.W. Bush became president of the United States, he uh, hired Barr first in the Office of Legal Counsel um, and in the Justice Department. And that's a very, very powerful position because rulings from the OLC uh, became almost known as law when it came to uh, the Mueller investigation and all that and whether or not uh, Donald Trump or any president could be prosecuted for a crime. Um, so uh, and, and Barr always ruled in favor of the imperial presidency. Uh, I talked to one member of the uh, Bush 43 Justice Department who worked with Barr, and he said the only reason Barr wasn't known as an incredible right-wing guy back then was that uh, Bush 43 really didn't want to be an autocrat. He was not looking to be dictator. But when Trump came around, of course, Trump really was looking to be a dictator. And uh, Barr uh, went uh, along with it in a big, big way right up till the end. I mean, unfortunately, my book ends while Barr is still in power. And I guess I was sort of stunned when Barr stepped down. And uh, it raises a lot of questions, I think, as to whether Barr knew in advance of the January 6th insurrection and decided, well, maybe that was just one step Step too far. Well, how did he work to assert the powers of the president in the lead up to the Gulf War in 1990? Well, he had, you know, um, your younger uh, listeners may not be aware of this, but, you know, there were major scandals in the Reagan-Bush era, like Iran-Contra and Iraq-Gate. And Barr was very much the cleanup hitter on all of that. He, he, he was a whitewashed man. And he was working very closely with a man whose name is familiar, Robert Mueller. And Mueller, I think, was wrongly characterized in the last couple of years as this man on a white who was going to climb up on his white steed and clear up all the scandals in the Bush uh, investigation, in, in the Trump investigation. And of course, he, that was a, a horrible misreading of what actually happened. And I think Mueller failed enormously and didn't really clean up things. I mean, I think this brings up one of the central problems with how uh, Trump's uh, relationship with, with Russia has been thwarted. And that is back when James Comey started to investigate Trump, uh, he started what was a counterintelligence investigation. Um, and a counterintelligence investigation is very, very different from a criminal investigation because intelligence operations uh, often operate within the law. And you can see that. I point to several examples of that in my book with regard to Trump and Russia. Um, Donald Trump Jr., for example, gave a speech in Paris uh, just before the 2016 election at a Russian think tank. He was paid uh, 50, 000, 50 to $100,000 or so for that. Nothing is illegal in that. But 
the French think tank was really a Russian front. Mm. And they were pumping Donald Jr. full of KGB, uh, or rather Russian uh, intelligence talking points with regard to the Middle East. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. forwarded those to his father. And a year or so later, after his father had taken office, bam, we withdraw from uh, uh, Syria. We abandon our Turkish allies there, and we leave the region, allowing Russia to dominate. Wasn't there a group uh, that was called the Catholic Mafia? How did they influence Barr's thinking at the time uh, when he was still with Bush? And how did it come into play later when he was Donald Trump's attorney general? Right. Well, um, you know, it is uh, Barr has denied that he's part of Opus Dei, which is a, a Catholic religious sect at the prelature. Um, and if you look at the, there really is what I call the uh, uh, the ascent of right wing Catholicism, and you see it on the Supreme Court. And there are uh, uh, people like Leonard Leo, who is one of the top members of the Federalist Society, and a lot of them are also tied to Opus Dei, this uh, right wing uh, sect that's very authoritarian and whose views seem to run very much parallel uh, to the idea of having an imperial and authoritarian presidency. So uh, Barr was one of those people. Technically, he may not be part of Opus Dei, but he goes to the Opus Dei Church outside of Washington. He's been on the board of directors of the Catholic Information Center, which is the... uh, Center of Operations for Opus Day in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, you see uh, their ascent has been very, very powerful, and they've taken again and again very extremist positions on the power of the presidency. And so what one of the big forces uh, propping up Trump was the, the Federalist Society and Opus Day's support of his uh, judicial appointees, and they really took over the the whole uh, legal system for a number of years and appointed dozens, hundreds of judges, really, to the, in that, uh, with that strain of thinking. In, in hopes of reversing Roe v. Wade. That is certainly one of the principal things, uh, absolutely. Um, and they... Uh, uh, and I, I guess what was even more immediate until Biden's victory was uh, they seemed to be pointing the way towards a real dictatorship that would be very, very hard to overthrow. Uh, and you could see it again in, in, in June in Lafayette last year, Lafayette Square, when you had a confrontation uh, of peaceful marchers uh, for Black Lives Matter and uh, marching in search of, uh, for racial uh, justice, and Barr allowed federal troops to be used against them. And that, that's no small deal to have American troops uh, fighting American citizens who are marching peacefully. Um, you know, it's, the reverse didn't happen on January 6th, so exactly the opposite, opposite happened. Now, uh, in a New York Times op-ed that was published three months before the 2016 election, 
Former CIA Director Michael Morell suggested that, quote, Putin had recruited Mr. Trump as an unwitting agent of the Russian Federation. Uh, did he base that on any hard evidence? Well, that, that's been enormously frustrating to me because uh, he's not the only one. I mean, uh, John Brennan has been saying this, James Clapper, uh, Dan Coates uh, uh, have all come to the same, same conclusion. And they, represent, and they represent the, the, the cover the spectrum of, the, of politics in America. Dan Coates is a, is a strong Republican, for example. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, these guys uh, are not operating as ideological leftists criticizing Trump. I mean, this is every part of the spectrum, and they're operating based on intelligence they know, but they won't reveal. So no one had gone after these questions really publicly, and uh, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, you know, I, I'm old enough that I, I grew up uh, when I was a teenager with the Manchurian Candidate as a, a, a great film of a, of a paranoid conspiracy that sort of defined the era in a way, especially after the uh, John F. Kennedy assassination. And everyone thought that was impossible. I mean, the idea that communists would take over the government. And yet you have uh, something that seems equally unbelievable. Uh, and that's what I try to outline. And I, one of the things I show is it's not one uh, long, uh, ingenious conspiracy that's played out of over 40 years. That's not the way it starts out. It starts out with the Soviet Union going after hundreds of, of potential spies. And Trump was like the most ideal target imaginable. When I talked to Yuri Schwitz about it, he can't stop laughing. He's so, he's so vain. He's so narcissistic. He is a, the, the, the target for your dreams to recruit. How do you recruit someone? And I asked. And he said, you're nice to them. You find out what they want. You offer them what you want. Is he vain? Would he like to build a tower in Moscow and make a lot of money? Uh, would he? Oh, he's so smart. You realize how stupid he is, but you say he's so smart. Your ideas on on poli international politics are uh, they're so unconventional. We need a leader like you in, in America. And Trump buys it. And that's the way it starts. Was Trump uh, a Republican at the time? Because uh, at least traditionally, the Republicans are supposedly more anti-communist uh, than uh, the, the, the Republicans even today are accusing Democrats of bringing, uh, leading us to communism. Right. With Trump, it wasn't about ideology. It was about uh, money, fame, glamour, his ego. Uh, I don't think he could, you know, he doesn't give it. He's a mobster. Think of him as a criminal. Uh, think of him as a big mobster. How do you make uh, a mobster happy? You give them what they want. And uh, if, if you look at his interaction with the KGB, it's a system of trading favors. Uh, Trump is, you know, I, I asked Yuri to, to characterize Trump uh, as an asset, uh, intelligence asset. What, you know, there's agents, there's assets, there are many different kinds of assets. And one of the differences between uh, agents and assets is an agent uh, knowingly reports to a handler. He can be tasked with very specific operations, and he, uh, you know, he's on the payroll. He, he's one of the team. An asset is someone who can be used. 
and it can, he can be witting or unwitting. Um, and in, in this case, Trump was what was known as uh, a special uh, unofficial contact, a special unofficial contact. Uh, one example of that is, was uh, the uh, late industrialist Armand Hammer, uh, who was a, a oil baron. He owned Occidental Petroleum. And he got all these uh, favorite concessions with the Soviet Union dating back to the days of Stalin. Uh, and he, so he was a special unofficial contact. Trump was, too, and he would do favors back and forth for the Russians. But, the, but Trump never got his tower on, on Red Square. <laughs> uh, exactly. I mean, they strung him along for decades. It, it had never happened. Um, it, it was not in Russia's interest. I mean, again, once you give them something, its value is, is kind of over. Um, uh, he, he, I, I suspect he got a lot more than we know. Uh, he got the presidency, for one. Being mm. president of the United States is a perk. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, Yuri says, you know, November 9th or whenever the, the election was, Yuri said, well, Putin lost. Biden won and Putin lost. Um, and it's true, I think. Uh, but uh, not, they, they have, Trump has paid back uh, Russia many, many times over. I mean, this went, and this is one of the most, uh, was probably the most successful intelligence operation in history. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You're Trump and you don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where corruption sits? Putin on the Ritz. KGB spies who meet in Trump Tower with the White House ties for talks of power. Email hits. Putin on the Ritz. Runs a den of liars. Before I get back to my conversation with Craig Unger, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We are asking all of our listeners to call 516-620-3602 or to go online to give to WBAI.org right now to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516-620-3602 or you can go to give to WBAI.org. And a great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery by my guest Craig Unger. But no matter what level you are able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you make that call to 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or go online to give to WBAI.org and become part of the amazing community of Leonard Lopez at Large listeners that are our only funding source 
listeners like John Anderson of Springfield Gardens, New York. Thanks, John. We can only keep independent radio alive on the New York radio dial with the help of listeners like you. So if you're listening to this at home right now thinking, well, I've supported BAI in the past, but then you've let your renewal lapse, consider this your renewal notice. Joking aside, we we need your support now more than ever. So why not go to your phone or computer right now and take a stand for the show and the station that brings it to you. And please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us to everyone who has donated so far, thanks. And let's get back to my guest, Craig Unger whose latest book is American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery, is published by Dutton. Uh, uh, A large portion of your book is about the relationship between Donald Trump, Robert Maxwell, Maxwell's daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Maxwell was a British media proprietor, a member of parliament, but also a suspected spy? Yeah, I would actually delete the word suspected. He, he was very, very close to the KGB and, and its head, General Kurchkov. Um, he uh, has a fascinating history because he was... Uh, um, uh, though he was known as a Brit, he was born in what is now Ukraine, but it was then, uh, uh, I think, part of Czech- Czechoslovakia. He spoke like nine languages. Uh, and after the war, he started uh, publishing companies, but they were always in league with intelligence operations, first uh, in Britain with MI6, but he became very, very close to the KGB, and he knew virtually every uh, every Russian, or rather Soviet leader, um, so well he could just walk into their offices un- unannounced. And he, he was the same with Israel, and he was very, very close to Mossad. So there's a, a wonderful point in the late 80s. Uh, uh, all these people you just mentioned, uh, in- including Maxwell, Donald Trump, and so forth, and Jeffrey Epstein, are sort of of a piece. They're corrupt as can be, unbelievably corrupt. They have links to intelligence operations, in, uh, again, and this way of sort of the special unofficial contact. And they trade favors back and forth on a massive, massive scale. Uh, and and uh, one of the extraordinary things I, uh, I interviews I, I had was with a, a former uh, Israeli agent named Ari Ben Menashe, and he was working with Robert Maxwell. They were working together, and they were doing arms deals and all sorts of stuff uh, that was sort of illegal. Uh, and one day, according to Ben Menashe, he saw a young Jeffrey Epstein in Maxwell's office in London, and that sort of puts everything in a new new, new light to me, because uh, the Jeffrey Maxwell operation has largely been talked about as a sex trafficking operation. And it, is a, it was a sex trafficking operation. It was quite horrifying in that regard. But it was also an operation that was designed to produce a compromise factory. It was collecting the dirty little secrets of the most powerful and richest people on the planet. And so they were secretly filming uh, the sexual adventures of all the people who may have gone down to Jeffrey Epstein's island 
uh, and so on. And, and they collected this big vault of uh, secrets that had enormous value as a compromise. Mm. Uh, but they, we, we don't have any compromise on Donald Trump in that regard, do we? Well, you know, it's a really good question. It's a big question. One, one thing I reported, and it, it's somewhat speculative but and not truly confirmed, but one of my sources said Epstein showed him, someone who was close to Epstein, and he says Epstein showed uh, him a picture of uh, Trump with two young girls who were mostly naked, and uh, everyone was laughing, and there was a stain on Trump's trousers at a rather unfortunate location. Hmm. Now, did Trump become uh, meet Jeffrey Epstein through Ghislaine? Or is it Ghislaine or Ghislaine? Uh, she pronounced it with a hard G, Ghislaine. Ghislaine. Ghislaine I, I think. Yeah. But, it, but it, it, it's a French name, and the French would say Ghislaine, I think. But, so, you know so Trump, so Trump met Ghislaine first through because of he knew his her father Robert Maxwell, and then met Jeffrey Epstein as a result. Uh, quite possibly the, the the way Trump certainly knew Robert Maxwell, and they were quite publicly in uh, events that were covered in the society pages of of, of the newspapers. Um, at one point, Ghislaine had a. She was trying to figure out what to do with her life, and she had a, a company that was in, uh, about giving corporate gifts. Gifts, and she asked her father if she could approach Donald Trump, who was her father's friend. And he said, "He said no. Get what's Donald, a millionaire like Trump, going to want to do with you?" Hmm. Uh, but she approached him anyway, and they became friendly. And uh, it's you know I, I've been trying to get at. When did Ghislaine first start meeting with Jeffrey Epstein? And the first time they were seen publicly was right after Robert Maxwell's really mysterious death uh, in 1991, I believe, and in which he disappeared off the boat, prow of his boat, his yacht, which is known as the Lady Ghislaine. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. All these people, of course, had yachts, and they— they competed on who would have the biggest and so forth. Another woman comes into this story named Anna Malova. What was her connection to both Trump and Epstein? Well, she was with both of them at one point, and uh, she was— uh, When I, you I, say I, with both of them, you mean with both of them? <laughs> uh, it appears that way. Uh, that is, she was staying in Trump Tower for some time, and she would uh, not at her own. She wasn't paying for it, and she was uh, also going down to Palm Beach. And uh, there were two or three Russian women at this point who seemed to have contacts with both Epstein and uh, and Trump, and who participated in beauty contests. And this is back when Trump. Uh, started buying beauty pageants, or the Miss Universe pageant and so forth, about three or four of them. And uh, some of these women ended up in Epstein stable. And you see uh, the uh, Trump also had a modeling company, you may recall. Uh, Epstein's friends had modeling agencies. Trump married three models. All three of his wives were models. Um, and this is where things get a bit seedy and a bit dicey. 
because uh, the operation, uh, you know, some of the Jean Luc Fernel had a had a modeling agency known as MC Squared, um, and and it, people joked E equals MC Squared, mm. as E meaning Epstein, mm. and Brunel became a very much part of Epstein's entourage, and uh, he brought. Uh, what it seems like all these modeling agencies follow the same pattern that they may have a couple of legitimate models who are supermodels and would bring in a lot of money, but then they would have 30 or 40 uh, of other models of young women who are very young, who are very attractive, but they really weren't making money. And uh, Jean Luc Brunel and uh, a Russian model agency man named uh, Petya Listerman. Uh, discovered a way to get more profit out of the the lower rank models was to rent them out. Uh, and if you uh, needed 20 young girls for your yacht party next week, Leonard, uh, you'd go to people like like them, uh, or for your ski parties in Stad and Davos and so forth. And they even taught them at some at some of the time corporate espionage. So this became uh, a very, very valuable uh, cottage industry uh, that was really seedy, but it involved the dirty little secrets of the richest, most powerful men in the world. Uh, there were at least, uh, I think, 478 DVDs captured from uh, Epstein's properties when he started being investigated. And uh, I've seen one of them, and, th and many of them are, uh, it is widely thought that all of these DVDs, or at least most of the uh, sexual activities that were secretly recorded. Now, a listener writes, uh, after Maxwell's death off the boat, did Mossad do it? The boat, Lady Ghislaine, was bought by Khashoggi family. Is that true? Right. Uh, a lot of interesting people in this story that we don't normally hear about as being connected. Right, right. Well, it is widely, widely speculated that Mossad did it, yes. Uh, and I don't have proof of that, but it, it's a reasonable guess. And part of it was that Maxwell got in deep, deep financial trouble. I mean, in many ways, he's so similar to Trump. Uh, and that he finally... Uh, he tried to uh, make a deal with Mossad. They didn't want to go along with it. And he said he was going to betray, betray them, essentially, and tell all their secrets. And um, that's not a good idea. Uh, don't do that to Mossad, I think, is a lesson. <laughs> you follow the Trump story through the, the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police and, and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed all the way through to the presidential campaign against Joe Biden. Um, how do you see those events unfolding and how did they affect the mental state of Donald Trump? Well, do you see I, him I, you in, know, in decline or has he always been the same guy? We just uh, been watching him differently. You know, I think both <laughs> really, I think he's in decline, but he is the same guy. He, he, again, I, I, I think when I try to, I don't like to try to get into his mindset because it's so dirty, but I think he's a mobster and he behaves like a mobster. 
and he wants to crush whatever gets in his path. And I think uh, you, you had several events. Once, one, of course, was George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, because, and to use that as ammunition. And the Republicans are still using it as ammunition now against Biden. Um, but he also was just, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, the other factor was COVID in a way. And this was a catastrophe that he only, he just wanted to ignore it or hope it would go away and no one would take it seriously. And to this day, Millions and millions and millions of his followers think COVID is a hoax. And, uh, in their, you know, we're, we're approaching 500,000 deaths, and they, they won't wear masks. I mean, it's insane. Now, a lot has been uh, conjectured about why Donald Trump has been so nice to Putin. Did you uncover any evidence of compromise that the Russians may have had on Trump in regard to Epstein and Maxwell? And would that have been... Uh, a way of blackmailing him? Well, I, I think there's an awful lot. One is just the, they had, he had relationships with, with the KGB. They have records of that. And that alone is powerful material. Two is he was doing an awful lot of uh, laundering uh, of Russian, of he, he was using his, his real estate was used to launder money from the Russian mafia. And there would be records of that. Uh, three is, you know, he, he, he lost everything. He was wiped out in Atlantic City in the 90s. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the Russians came to his aid. And uh, there was a, a real estate development company called Bayrock located in Trump Tower. And it was completely funded uh, by wealthy Soviet emigres and oligarchs who were close to Putin and so forth. They would have all those records, uh, you know, and, and the loans to, you know, I think the financial records on him alone would put him in jail for the rest of his life. He has these loans to uh, Deutsche Bank, which is really uh, the only Western bank that would uh, put up with him. And it has very strong ties to the Russian Federation. So there's That's a whole bunch of ways. And there may be sexual compromise in several levels, yeah. one from Epstein, as we discussed earlier, uh, two from his trips to Russia, to, uh, where uh, uh, he was completely followed by Russian intelligence. In, in 1987, his first trip uh, in, in American compromise, I give you the, the name of the general in the KGB who set up that trip. And it meant that uh, the KGB was authorizing it. They were booking it through their uh, subsidiary known as Intourist, which is sort of their travel agency, the chief Soviet travel agency, but it was really a KGB front back in the, those years. And then once he got to Moscow and St. Petersburg, it is um, you can bet on it that their rooms were bucked and they were approached by women. And there may well be video somewhere. I don't know. We have to. Uh, I was hoping uh, to even bring up Alexei Navalny, but we have no more time. My great thanks to Craig Unger, Amer his latest book, American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. It's published by Dutton. 
What a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard. It was great to be here. And that brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and you'd like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to send me a comment about a show or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I, I would like to ask for your support for this show and the station that brings it to you. If, if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you on London Lopate at Large, please call 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org right now to help keep the show and WBAI on the air. And one great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep this show and the station running. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery by my guest Craig Unger. It's our way of saying thanks, but only if you make that call right now. One last time, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please remember to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And thanks. We hope that you will tune in again tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to this program, Robert Henley, will join us to discuss some of the underreported issues of the day. Keep calling, support this station, and we'll see you tomorrow.